0: So what, what was the unique insight with which we started the company? It was based on uh, the past previous experience of building SaaS companies that SaaS, every SaaS company shouldn't have to build certain components themselves. And we should be able to provide that abstracted within API. That was the unique insight with which we started. And yet, uh, when we were in the process of getting customers, we lost track of that part. Rather, we built an API first product based on all of that. And yet we thought of trying to get anybody as a customer which is the typical the engineer mindset of challenge challenge, accepted mode to say okay yeah, I can solve the problem if e-commerce company shows up let me try and solve it for them right and uh, we went a little bit everywhere to try and solve the problem through configurations and all of that and the realization um, through that iterative phase of this figuring out was there is a limited it's not a problem a question of can you solve that it's a question of can you solve it in a time? Uh, the, the limited amount of time to get to that inflection point.
1: Welcome to Prime Venture Partners Podcast,
0: a podcast for entrepreneurs looking to build and grow their startups. Learn about uncommon strategies and common traps from makers and doers of startup
1: ecosystem hi everybody uh, this is sanjay swami here from prime ventures welcome again to a new episode of the prime venture partners podcast uh, this is likely to be the last podcast of the year of the calendar year 2020 uh, which uh, you know despite all of the uh, challenges that everyone has faced uh, i think one of the clear takeaways here has been this is the year of saas and i'm delighted to bring a founder on uh, here from the SaaS industry and one who actually enables a lot of the SaaS uh, companies around the world to be successful. Uh, my guest today is Krish, founder and CEO of Chargebee. Krish, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much for having me Sanjay. Uh, glad to be here, thank you.
1: Wonderful. So Krish, um, you know, as I said, this has been the year of SaaS, uh, but SaaS companies also, uh, take a lot of time to develop, there's a lot uh, that once goes through in the, I would say, zero to one phase, one to ten phase, and then from that point on, uh, do tell us a little bit about your journey, and you know, we've, uh, we're not investors in the company, uh, sadly, but we've uh, known you right from the beginning and been uh, uh, big cheerleaders and supporters, but uh, would love to hear you share with our audience, you know, about your fabulous journey. Sure,
0: thank you. I, I still remember your, uh, your diligence call for on behalf of Shaker <laughs> from Axel. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so uh, we started ChargeV in 2011. We bootstrapped the company through a year and a half of uh, building the product and getting those alpha beta customers. Um, and then we raised capital from investors. Um, so, so even after launching the product, the, the zero to one uh, journey was not a straight line. Um, to give some context, my co-founders, uh, all four of us are co-founders. All of us come from engineering background. Three of my co-founders have built, uh, SaaS products previously at Zoho. Uh, and, uh, that's how we all came together. I come from product implementation background. And, um, when we first, as first time founders, when we launched a product, it took us close to 12, 14 quarters to get to that right first million dollars. And, um, uh, there is, that's the reason I said it's not a straight. The reason I said it's not a straight line is around that half a million mark is when you realize that um, the natural constraints and the advantages with which we build um, also becomes the reasons why you attract a certain types of customers. We built everything with inbound because we built from Chennai, but built at something global uh, from the beginning. We focused on North America, European markets because the problem was subscription billing as a problem was more relevant uh, in. And the more mature businesses were there, and we focused on those markets. Uh, and because it is inbound, uh, we found the different types of businesses that were looking looking for this solution. And inbound, as you know, the SEO, SEM, all of that attracts either e commerce companies and SaaS companies, and also some agencies, all types of businesses found us. And they, some of them became customers. And as first time founders, of course, you're also enthusiastic about anybody who would show up at your step to say, I want a solution and then we are are trying to recruit them as customers and that happened um, with all enthusiasm you want to serve and learn from them Um, but what happened uh, in that journey of that figuring out was I think uh, sets us up for either a lot of pain or uh, success and thankfully we had uh, some good advisors to help us through that phase to say hey who's your customer Uh, are these the right customers and uh, are you what kind of a seed are you planting that would grow in a particular way later. And I think those kind of questions where, where we spent a lot of time in that zero to one million. I'll, I'll pause here to, uh, to let you ask a particular directional question that would be helpful for the audience.
1: Sure, sure. So uh, you talked about the, the zero to one phase, you know, identifying the right types of customers as you establish product market fit. Uh, what were some of the decisions you all made uh, in in your uh, choice of customers, customer segments, and how has that stayed consistent as the company has scaled uh, through a couple more phases since?
0: Sure. Um, so when um, when we tried to define, uh, so what what was the unique insight with which we started the company? It was based on. Uh, the past previous experience of building SaaS companies that SaaS, every SaaS company shouldn't have to build certain components themselves and we should be able to provide that abstracted within API. That was a unique insight with which we started. And yet, uh, when we were in the process of getting customers, we lost track of that part. Rather, we built an API first product based on all of that and yet we thought of trying to get anybody as a customer, which is the typical, the engineer mindset of, challenge challenge accepted mode to say, okay, hey, I can solve the problem. If e-commerce company shows up, let me try and solve it for them. Right, And uh, we went a little bit everywhere to try and solve the problem through configurations and all of that. And the realization um, through that iterative phase of this figuring out was there is a limited, it's not a problem a question of, can you solve that? It's a question of, can you solve it in a time, uh, the, the limited amount of time to, get to that inflection point um, and uh, um, develop deep expertise and also a product that uh, it resonates beautifully for one segment of customers who are able to champion and appreciate what you have built. Um, So we had to make certain choices like letting go of, let's say, even though multiple markets are attractive, we had to say, okay, let's stay focused on SaaS and SaaS-like businesses Mm -hmm. for a period of time before we focus on more segments. So those kind of early choices were very helpful, and it was a little painful to uh, say we are not going to focus on certain segments. But having said that, there are always adjacencies. We all play in adjacencies in our customer base, where some customers like Soylent, which were led by a CTO uh, as one of the founders, they were behaving like a SaaS company. We could actually make our API-first product work for them. Um, so that so the product works for multiple segments it does not mean. Um, you should not have a strong hypothesis. So these were some of the key learnings for us early on in terms of first time mistakes to deliberately focus on um, the the segments that uh, work for us and also iterating on our pricing to ensure that it was aligned with our customer success. um, And also it acted as a filter to uh, remove certain segments that we did not want to serve. Like for example, we we deliberately have a premium pricing model but it's not free forever. Mm -hmm. You start with a freemium model but when you hit $50,000 of aggregate invoicing, you automatically move into a paid tier. So we want our customers to know that at some point this is going to be a paid product and we want to offer the best service to scale with you but don't think of us as free and it also acts as a filter for certain segments. So these kind of, and it was a little uh, scary to introduce these iterative uh, these kind of pricing changes uh, for fear of uh, losing existing customers because we are selling a $40 million product and we were afraid of thinking, hey, will enough people actually buy the product? But it turned out to be a good decision because that's the only way. Only by changing the pricing, we will actually know uh, what resonates with the market and all of that. So those were some um, interesting changes that happened during that phase uh, that taught us a lot.
1: So that's that's very interesting, right? Because uh, again, you know, a lot of times we tell founders you know, uh, A, if you underprice the product uh, in the beginning, you're sort of making this uh, a very small market for yourself. Potentially, it's very hard to raise prices. And B, um, uh, you know, finding price discovery as well. You don't have to wait to prove things out too much, right? Get to that right price point. One of our SaaS companies actually here, which is India-based, they kept doubling their price with every customer they they talked to until they got serious pushback. And that was a way to establish uh, price discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, you know, uh, we, you talked about the zero to one phase, and you said that took all of uh, almost, uh, um, you know, the, the three, four years, really, right, in the making for, for that to happen. and And that's when you sort of clearly knew exactly, you know, that this was something that had product market fit in the segment. Um, And um, as you scale from the next phase, right, the one to 10 phase, um, you know, you would have had the opportunity of different geographies, different customer segments, different, you know, some many companies try to quickly go up market because churn is very high in the, at least traditionally in the SMB segment and, um, you know, and the, cost of sales and the sales cycle is much larger, but it's less churn in in the higher end segments. Uh, What was, what has your journey been, you know, and along these lines and what are some feedback and advice you have for founders who are setting out, uh, you know, and and at that stage?
0: Sure. Um, So the the context of our market is that um, till recently, at least two, three years back, we were uh, This is a very nascent market category as such to some extent um, because of the build versus buy argument that still goes on between the CTO and the the rest of the organization, right? Um, And in any of those categories, uh, uh, selling to early stage customers, uh, you are basically selling to, for API first product, we were selling to the CTO and then it's always against the ego of the the person to say, hey, you, you shouldn't be building it yourself means that's challenge accepted. We like, mm-hmm. don't want to say that. How do you change that perception? Right? Things like premium uh, goes a long way in helping to say, hey, it's not that you cannot do it, but as you scale, you will need this and this and this. Uh, your business users will start asking more things, so you probably don't want to build. Um, so that is how we try to frame it, and having premium and other things help change that, shift that argument a little bit, to remove that objection and get more conversion in the early stage for the smallest segment of customers. And to put it in context, it's zero to one million SaaS companies. Mm-hmm. Like, let's imagine that's the the first persona. There is the the next phase which is once somebody establishes product market fit and then scaling the between that one to five million dollars. Um, there is again that so we think of ourselves as a product where our customers choose a change billing system only probably four or five times five times in the life of their journey. Right. When you are starting out when you have product market fit and you know that something is working, but you don't want to spend any time here. Um, and it's mostly a second time uh, founder or, um, or they are hiring an operations person to hand over the, the billing related things or a finance person comes in and then they decide this is suboptimal. I don't want to do it in Excel sheets or, uh, or the CTO decides that, no, this is not what I'm going to keep building. So let's do that. The third one is uh, the between the 10 to $25 million stage when you are beginning to scale and you are setting up the leadership team and the founders are giving away things to the next level leadership and allowing them to operate. And it's either a director of finance or an operations person, somebody who comes in and then they decide that I have to change the infrastructure. And sometimes they go after multiple infrastructure tools, like including your CRM, accounting system, and all of that. And that's another third stage. The fourth stage we think of is you are getting, you are able to dream about an IPO like in two years three years time and you probably are going to pick this anywhere between 40 to 60 million dollars is another stage and then probably then the only other opportunity is probably post ip or something like that right that's a segment that we don't play in today this is the context of how we think about our customer segments in that context we have now defined it now i'm talking about as if we had this all figured out but so bear with me uh, <laughs> uh, but in hindsight right i'm now able to define the segments as zero to one is Startup segment, one to twenty-five million dollars is our scale-up segment, and twenty-five to hundred is a growth segment. Internally, that's how we look at it. And the reason why we segment it differently is the their buying motion is different. the The messaging and positioning for each of the segment has to be had to be different, and uh, who purchases the or who makes a buying decision is also very different in each of this. And our product, right, um, also had to grow with our customers. So the way we have driven our roadmap is. 60 percent of the roadmap is driven by our existing custom fastest growing customers who are pulling our product to the next stage hmm. so if you focus on our top 50 customers then what happens is um, they are growing really fast beyond the 100 million then what ha- then we are able to um, deliver we, we are aligned with delivering the capabilities for them then the product is already ready for the the 2900 other customers who are following them. Right. So that's how we looked at the, the product roadmap and that can scale to the next segment. But the challenge is the go-to-market motion is not the same, even if though your product may be ready. Hmm. So we are used to selling through freemium and then a quick um, 20 days kind of a sales cycle in the startup segment. And suddenly uh, what is required for a 5 million or a 25 million company is something more sophisticated. They have existing systems changing a billing system is like a spine surgery, if somebody is afraid of changing it, then we had to put in the, the right go-to-market motion along with this, So, which means that sales team cannot go in and then push for a sale quickly. They had to consult, understand what all is there in the existing system, how do I help you with change management, evaluate, make them feel safe about the change, and then handhold them. For that, we had to one change our ma- sales methodology where the same salespeople who worked for successful salespeople who worked in startup segment needs a different sales methodology for the, the scale-up segment and then the larger segment. So we were focused on building this organizational muscle uh, to teach new sales methodology for salespeople, set up pre-sales team to complement uh, the salespeople. So which means that there was a combination of a pre-sales and a salesperson for um, every prospect Mm-hmm. and we continue doing that. Um, so to put this, uh, I'm, I'm actually talking about a lot of things in terms of what to do, right? Uh, but let me give some, con- um, I'm, I'm going to take a minute to just give some context about at what point. So between the one to five million phase, right? You realize that if you are selling a 4K product, mm-hmm. ACV, what does it take for you to go from five to 10 million in, let's say four quarters? How do you double the revenue? Right. Now, the, the number of customers you have to acquire suddenly starts looking a little scary to go from to the lifetime of whatever you have done in the company in the world, to get to the 5 million, you want to replicate it in one year. Hmm. How do you do that? Now, suddenly there are only few levers that are available for you to go do that, right? Which is your pricing or your ACV of your customers that you sell to and then number of customers you can acquire. And right. suddenly you realize that which are the ones that are the most attractive and most feasible Given where your product stands and given the maturity of our company, what do we do? So what we did was we, at that point, was when we decided to say, let's do what we have done till this point for five to 10. But by the time we get to 10, definitely it's going to get harder to go from 10 to 20. So what are all the foundations we had to put? So what we did was that one year, we we built an organizational muscle to one set up the middle management uh, layer in the team. And then... Uh, setting up the sales methodology and then preparing ourselves for the upmarket move, so that the sales motion changes, GTM teams are structured. All of that happened for one year while our execution was focused on whatever had worked till that point. Um, I think we, so. Those were some things I think we got right that helped us to consistently double revenue from like, uh, uh, like five to ten, ten to twenty, and so on and so forth. Like um, so, that is how we did that, uh, Sanjay
1: got it got it so uh, how much of this is um, you know as, as we said you know you uh, initially the i guess us was your key market but now you know you have customers all over the world um uh, certainly in several geographies right and at what point did you feel that you had to expand um, because I, I guess there are multiple things you could do right as you said you know change your acv uh, increase the sales team etc etc but there's also the segment you go after in terms of the tiers of customers as well as the geographic expansion, right? And you guys have kind of done all of the above, you know, very methodically. So when did the geographic expansion come into your uh, your growth?
0: Right. Actually, we are still focused on the same geographies where we had sold because inbound we had North America and uh, Europe
1: mm-hmm. um, um,
0: as the primary markets and that those continue to remain the primary markets along with uh, APAC. APAC is five percent of the business, but um, North yeah. America continues to be sixty percent of the, the business. Uh, we have deliberately steered away from temptation to go into multiple other geographies hmm. where there is there are still opportunities, um, like for example uh, Japan or other markets. Because when we tried having feet on street in uh, Europe, what we learned was. Um, especially in the upmarket mode to sell $50,000, $100,000 deals, what happens is you um, you would think, okay, having local sales presence would help, and then we tried doing that, and what we learned through the failed uh, attempt was uh, when we tried to do that in Europe was, if we don't think of this as a, a holistic, how do we support that group to be more successful and then think of the structure that is necessary to help the team in on the ground, it is not a good way to do that. right? In, so, there are simpler ways to, we all solve that to start with, to test any market, which is through product, write code, integrate with the right partners, uh, make it more appealing to the customers. That's a simpler way to test any market. And we had reasonably 500 customers or something like that in Europe, even before we tried doing this. But even then, what we realized was very hard was um, what is that that's missing for a salesperson to be successful? When we hired a couple of salespeople and then Um, When they brought the 50K, 100K deals, um, our realization was that without the the pre-sales people to support them on the ground or uh, continuously having the the right support structure to also fast track their learning process, like onboarding time, three to six months, how do we help them prepare and learn the product really fast to be successful? Those things, uh, we had to invest in that a little bit more than it's it's much beyond just hiring a few salespeople and then hoping that somehow the organization facilitates it. those were some missteps. So the biggest learning when it comes to geographic expansion, especially local hiring, is uh, making sure that the, we start with the leadership hiring for somebody who is invested in the success of whoever that you are hiring. Right. So we started with the hiring the sales leader there in that geography and then the salespeople. So that the gaps in the organization are highlighted by the sales leader and gets conveyed on the ground. Uh, and we can actually go fix it and then help them faster. Was one of the key learnings when we started hiring locally uh, in the upmarket move process. Uh, but other than that, I think we all do the the, the rest of the things uh, which are normal, which is like making sure we are localizing currencies, language support hours, and integration partner right integration partners to make it appealing and things like that. or uh, the product side of things that we did ahead of that before the geographic expansion.
1: Yeah. So, can you talk a little bit about org building in a more specificity? Right. I mean, I know a little bit about what you've tried to do in the U.S., but uh, you know, you mentioned earlier that it's now a full-fledged org, right? Uh, you're still largely based in Chennai, and uh, although you do shuttle back and forth, I'm sure this year has been uh, an interesting year. But um, you know, when is the right time in your mind? for India-based startups, right? That are selling primarily overseas, right? And, and there are multiple schools of thought. The most common one is one founder at least should be based in the U.S. right from the beginning and, and at least, you know, the customer facing person. Uh, you guys have not done that, right? And um, uh, in hindsight, was that the right thing to do? And uh, how have you built the org in the U.S. Uh, over the years? Sure.
0: Uh, absolutely no regrets about the decision to stay here. Um, so- thankfully, going well. Um, I think um, some of the advice from uh, operators who have scaled nicely was very, very helpful from the, the $5 million plus stage. One of the first observations when Insight uh, invested in Chargby was, hey, looks like pretty much your middle management doesn't exist. Like Pretty much all decisions are coming to founders, whether it's engineering product decisions or GTM. If I ask who is responsible for this, again, again, it comes back to founders. So first thing you need is, let it be the founders in these layers, but hire your managers first, so that you, when you go from five to ten, you have the managers who are making or who are executing most of these things from the decisions that are already made, right? And um, so the the first five million dollar, at least, till we got to that. Uh, this is real and it is possible to actually build a large company that doesn't, it, it doesn't sink in, right? Where mm-hmm. it's always about hedge down, focused on figuring out things one step uh, before the other is how the mode is. Um, but I think getting to that point and then um, when the data actually says that, hey, this is actually going to be real and it's going to become large uh, was when it hits. Um, and thankfully we listened to that feedback to uh, an observation because we didn't see it ourselves. then we decided to build the the management, the the manager layer. And that was a little painful. I was very surprised how painful it was to actually introduce the manager layer inside the organization because suddenly you are looking at some of the peers becoming managers and then some of them may be first-time managers. And one challenge is some of your people accepting this suddenly the peer who may have more experience but still a peer becoming a manager, that creates some organizational challenges. Uh, in terms of retention and all of that. The second one was also um, the rock star individual contributor becoming responsible for people. How much time is necessary to coach this person to ensure that they really start learning to own the, it's a responsibility, not a privilege. right? So how do we teach that? Now suddenly if a startup becoming this, we realize that now from every day going in and then looking at number of leads, what else are we going to do? Now suddenly you start shifting your focus towards People side of things a lot more about uh, helping these people, and you don't want to take the steering wheel again, um, right? And you have to trust them, and yet we have to become coaches it was an interesting transformation. So that went on uh, while we were also scaling this revenue, that manager layer. And then the realization was now we needed the director layer so that when we are hedge focused on this uh, current month and current quarter, how do we pull ourselves out? So, that there is a next level of people who are able to take care of that. Mm-hmm. And we are able to focus on the year ahead, was the next challenge. Um, and uh, so it started, there, there were a couple of ways in which we approached it. One was, one school of thought was, hey, you should, you probably getting to the 10 million, you should probably hire a um, CRO, right? Have a, especially when we are looking at upmarket move and all of that, do that. And all those was there. Another school of thought was, if you hired, if you focus heavily on the sales and the upmarket more too soon, what might happen is the sales team might actually figure out how to sell. But the problem is you will get pulled in all directions if you are the, the customer segmentation, the product feature discipline is not established methodically because it was the product was still founder-led. Hmm. So what we did was slightly counterintuitive where we said we hired a CPO first and then allow the person to come in look at all the data and then tighten the roadmap and then bring in the product discipline to make sure that we were strengthening whatever was working let's make sure that's done well and then have a methodical plan to move up market and it was very interesting because only when the cpo came in even conversations like how to point the entire company in a single direction using these segmented the names for the segment all of those conversations started happening right and, and this is what I was uh, mentioning earlier, Sanjay, which is the startup scale up and grow, the definitions and all of that. It, it uh, did not feel very natural for us, even though we had segmentation, we were trying to align with the natural segmentation of a gardener or somebody else. Nothing wrong with it, but we also had to do that based on our customers' data. Okay. Right? Our customers were all SMB to mid-market and the traditional number of employee-based segmentation did not really align with how the customers were buying the product so we had to find our own metrics in terms of how to segment and then label it so our organization was aligned in a directional execution based on this Uh, so cpo decision was good um, was very important for us to actually bring that focus and then we hired when then we focused on the upmarket more and then hired the cro more than a year and a half later this um, slightly change in approach was very important because uh, the, we could strengthen whatever was working before we actually pull the company up mm-hmm. in the execution consistently. Um, and uh, then we could point the, to the salespeople what to sell and whom to sell rather than the sales people somehow selling and stretching the organization to try and sell, uh, figure out how to win the customer. Like, uh, the reason is you could bring, um, let's say somebody like a um, an e-commerce company, subscription company at a 25 or $50 million, $100 million e-commerce company to the table. But the problem is is our product the right one for them then? Mm. Definitely not. Right At that time, we would have been stretched thin if we had tried to meet the needs of that customer. Right. But the, the problem is you have put in so much effort into getting them at the doorstep that uh, you don't have the heart to say walk away that easily because the deal size might actually be like, holy shit, this is like, All the deals put together kind of size and then (laughs) you would want to do everything
1: not biting off more than you can chew basically is uh, exactly a critical thing when to walk
0: away and we needed that voice right and that stakeholder was the product leader who is not the founder so building that executive team strong executive team was the key Uh, so to go back to your question of how we actually thought about this we deliberately started with hiring the person in us because there are fewer people available in this local market to actually hire We've been through the cycles of upmarket move and also scale. Um, And then with the CPO, then we hired the uh, CRO and then aligned sales, pre-sales and customer success together. Uh, So all of these transformation was from founder led to the executives led and the founder's role then became walking the perimeter and that continues to happen. Right? We have joint responsibilities, but we trust our executives to now run and then our job is to continuously enable them how we are continuously transforming ourselves to ensure we are helping them. So that in the gist is how we have tried to hire the leaders in different geographies and also setting up multiple levels of structures in there.
1: Fabulous, fabulous. And um, uh, so coming back to, you know, SaaS, uh, I mean, ultimately you are also a SaaS company and your customers are a bunch of SaaS companies as well. Um, and if you go and, you know, look all over the internet, you know, there's a whole bunch of metrics, uh, SAS metrics in itself is almost like, a, like one could do a, a thesis on it, right? What do you, what in your business has been uh, the most, I would say the three to four most important metrics that you all have tracked and what is the, because um, you also talked about metrics to characterize your customers as well, right, in terms of, uh, you know, the number of users was not the right metric for you as well, right? So uh, as you've built this and as the business has evolved, right? what have been the key uh, metrics that you all have tracked and, and, and what, what, yeah. So,
0: um, early stage, I think uh, uh,
1: it was very important to find what
0: our North Star metric was. Like it, um, revenue could be, but the problem with revenue alone as a North Star metric is it's going to be an iterative process and it's very hard to get it right first. Uh, so what we found for ourselves, the North Star metric was our customers revenue and overall how much did we process as a company. Uh, when Then we could say, okay, who was using the product really well? If they are monetizing, if that's growing, then we are growing well. Then we started applying that to cohorts of customers that we were winning as well because we had premium. Um, again, we had to track this as cohorts of customers uh, who were moving out of premium into paid and how the revenue cohorts were building up. So, what told us some of the bad story, I think think more than which metrics to track, I think uh, how did we know we were not having the right product market fit around that half a million dollar stage was logo churn was high, but more importantly, um, the the revenue churn was really definitely not in the right direction. Hmm. Uh, It was not getting to the net negative where there was not enough upgrades, there was not enough even overage, where the customers were not, the cohorts were not building up, even in the North Star metric. And when you know that, you know that something is wrong, where the churn is high. Um, if you had 100 customers uh, at the point where you're at half a million dollar mark, and then if you want to find the next 500 or next thousand customers, definitely there are going to be that out of the 100 customers, maybe your 20 or your 50 customers are your best customers. The other 50 probably are not your best customers. Now, how do you make sure that you get more of the 20 or the 50 that you want and make sure that you get most of them for the next 1,000? That is what we want to do. And um, when we look at it through that lens, I think we will, um, depending on the business context, I'm sure we will all figure the right metrics, which is NRR is very, very important. Segmented data, when you are past million or five million mark, it's very important to start segmenting the data by whatever slice that works for the business, but also start looking at uh, churn metrics, NRR metrics by segmentation. That was one of the biggest changes for us to know which segments where we had to put in more effort into retaining uh, where the churn is really happening and all of that. And when we look at it in aggregate, it somehow hides the real story. So, segmented metrics of uh, customer acquisition, uh, activation, uh, new customer ASP and also churn and nrr were very, very important. And the, the qualitative metric is the one where churn reasons by segment, which is deliberately making sure customer success or somebody in the team is uh, reaching out to the customer to understand the real reason, right? The product can facilitate the, the churn. You don't want to create friction in the process. At the same time, you want to know why churn is happening. And the reasons are very different for different segments of customers. Mm-hmm. So the qualitative metric uh, plays a very is a, plays a huge role in the one to five million, in my opinion, um, because it told us uh, a lot of things about uh, some of the difficulties in okay, somebody paying two ninety nine dollar per month, but then churning out because somebody uh, the organizational priority changed. The purchaser started prioritizing something else, and the rest of the organization was not aligned in implementing it. So it's actually an implementation churn rather than problem with the product. So then how do you solve that? It has to be a process driven change where we had to either get an annual commitment or an implementation fee as a friction point that drives the customer to commit longer or commit seriously mm. before you get them in. It's not about the money. It's more about the commitment and that helps the churn. Otherwise your metric looks like, oh, we sold $10,000, of a uh, $100,000 of ARR, but next month you would have lost uh, another $10,000 or $20,000 of that ARR, right? And what's the point of actually winning $100,000 when the, the loaded cost of all of that goes into the LTV cap? all the metrics starts looking bad. Um, so more than the, the key metrics, I think one learning from us was, uh, for us was segmented metrics, especially the key metrics, and also looking at first principles, reasons for churn were very helpful for the, especially the, the early stages.
1: Got it. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, partners here, right? And and uh, you know larger companies that you know because right from the beginning you've sort of been a layer on top of several of the payment gateways. Has always been talk about you know why can't uh, you know one of the some of the big names in the segment do it themselves and things like that. Uh, And yet they're also you know very important partners for you, right? So there's a little bit of a.
0: uh, Enemy relationship.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and I was gonna say the you know, can't live with them, can't live without them uh, sort of situation sometimes or a possibility. Uh, how did you approach that? And you know, uh, did you work closely with some of these companies to to help you win business as well? Uh, you know, through their partner programs. You know, so explain to us how SaaS sure. companies can leverage partnerships intelligently. Right.
0: Uh, so the we have we are flying on three sectors. Right? We we play a pivotal role in. It's an opportunity as well as the same threat, which is the CRM side, Salesforce, HubSpot, Pipedrive. we have integrations with them. On the accounting side, QuickBooks Zero, NetSuite, Intact, and then payment process like Stripe, Braintree, and all of that. And Stripe has comparable offerings, now even Stripe Billing is a monetized product exactly in our space, and then several of that. What we have, the way we think about this is how can we be the Switzerland for billing, that there is an agnostic player necessary that allows our customers to be able to choose multiple systems, what is in their best interest as they continue scaling through different stages. Uh, Is how we think about our safe space, right? How, why we should exist and why we believe we can double down on focusing on this. Um, But from a relationship perspective, um, majority of our customers, when in a a nascent space where most companies have in-house billing, where they have written some amount of code themselves, which they shouldn't have to build themselves, and yet they are built on top of these partners, like the, the integrated solutions like Stripe and Braintree, how do we then build a relationship? Um, I think one of the things that happened was uh, when we had the freemium and then we, uh, we were actually helping them also activate a lot of customers, early stage companies. For the partner, we were actually focused on highlighting how much volume is actually going to come through, and then we help them with the projection to say, this is how we see the trajectory going based on our data. In terms of the number of new accounts that you're going to get, and I could actually help promote you more and more. So instead of actually thinking about what we could actually get from them, we had the integrations, but to do formalize the partnership, we demonstrated how they will benefit from that, however small it is, but painted a vision of how things can look in the next two, three years. And that helped secure these partnerships uh, with Braintree PayPal and Shripe and all these payment processors, key processors. And also accounting system CRM so that we could uh, do that but it also it was scary right it was not without these voices in the room even within our company to say hey are we um, shouldn't we be worried about exposing our roadmap are we highlighting too many of their features to our customers instead of actually like getting it hmm. and we say we decided to just take the approach to say what is in the best interest of the customer for example Stripe was Stripe continues to be amazing in their execution in terms of innovation as well as the capabilities that we bring to, they bring to the table. And we said, the only way where we are going to remove exit bar- entry barrier is by removing exit barriers. So we said, let's store the cards inside Stripe. Our customers are free to go and then build on top of Stripe at any point if they want to. Let's remove the exit barrier. It will remove the entry barrier. And mm-hmm. then we, we also started promoting, building our features in alignment with their roadmap. For example, we had a joint roadmap when they were releasing ACH, um credit uh, transfer as a capability, which was beautiful. Um, we said, let's launch, be the first ones to launch. So we built that and then exposed to the customers. So deliberately feeling secure about our space and then even telling the partner that we are comfortable, you are the big you guys are the big guys. We are the small guys, but we are comfortable with just promoting your thing, products, while we know that you may play in our adjacency we may compete at some level. And the way it's beautifully now transforming is, we now have co-selling motion in some segments, even with partners, some of these partners, where there are some segments that's not very interesting to them or they are actually thinking of, how do I do this? And we have some uh, particular uh, strengths uh, in geographies or in segments of size of customers, where the sales, the, the way think about it is, billing is a separate division, payments, they treat that as a separate division. So we are actually deeply in partnership with the payments group, while billing might still think of us as a like-for-like solution and we might come up on deals and compete. Uh, That is how the relationships are evolving, but I don't think this is going to go away in a SaaS world, right? because all of us have overlaps. And if you think about what makes any SaaS company win at a certain scale, we all want increased wallet share and we are all going to introduce features that are having overlaps, one to reduce churn, uh, second to have ability to uh, upsell, and also to continue to defend your mode to increase wallet share, right? Uh, and I think for all these reasons, we all do that because your reduced cost of acquisition and increased revenue means your LTV looks really beautiful and strong. If you could build a component that customers are going to buy, but I could cross sell that to 50% of my customer base, of course, you're going to build it. There is a reason to do it. So this best of read versus best of suite is only going to move in a direction where we are going to see more of that and overlaps will happen. But I think this is what has helped us um, and, uh, the narration we have is, and, uh, strongly the direction where we are moving is we believe,
1: uh,
0: that if we act in the interest of our customer to be the agnostic player as a Switzerland for billing, there is a space for us to continue doing that, uh, to develop that. And with that, we have set up the partnership team to say, be open and let's just work with pretty much all of them where there may be competition.
1: So let's uh, flip the things a little bit now, right? I mean, we talked about a David and Goliath sort of partnership where you are the David, but you guys are fast becoming a Goliath uh, also, right? And there will be younger startups, smaller startups that will be perhaps looking to partner with Charge B, right? And uh, uh, so are you open to that? How do you see that develop, you know, and... Uh, uh, because once again, you could always look at it and say, "Well, I can build this stuff myself. Why should I be partnering and exposing my customer base, perhaps?" Right. So how, I think so. You know, how does the company, you know, make that transition? Right. It's more a mindset right. thing rather than. A...
0: Rather than correct. Oh, yeah. uh, well, absolutely. I think beautiful question. Uh, we already have examples of that, uh, which is uh, analytics. It's a space where we play in the adjacency. We have our own revenue story um, analytics, but. Uh, from the beginning when we started working with uh, ProfitWell as well as ChartMogul and even BearMetrics, especially BearMetrics was fairly new in the integration, Uh, ChartMogul and ProfitWell. uh, They asked us and then we transparently told them, I remember meeting Nick Franklin of ChartMogul as well as Patrick Campbell of ProfitWell to tell them that we don't have a sophisticated analytics but then I wouldn't rule it out because this may become a reason for churn or it may become a table stakes for winning a customer, which means that we will build it but we are happy to expose everything in the API and we will not hold back when it comes to the data. You tell us what you need to deliver the best experience for customers. So we do real time integration with them and also expose it. At the same time, we are focused on our customers to make sure that we build the best analytic system. And I'm sure that each of our product takes a roadmap uh, based on where our customers are pulling us. For example, uh, if you take Chartmogul, uh, they have been focused on things like uh, bringing in CRM, marketing automation data, mashing that on top of existing system data, and then creating a uh, a combined system that actually measures SaaS metrics with something else, right? Other data and provides them something else. So their customers are pulling them in a particular direction. So your point, the question is spot on. It it absolutely requires a mindset shift to make sure that we don't become that closed company, the moment uh, it becomes about us, right? So uh, the way we are internally again and again deriving the narration is to make sure that uh, we build an open ecosystem, open API, allow others to build on top of that, just be transparent with even the smaller players who are building on top of it, if there is any question, because we don't want those smaller companies to think like you screwed us over by doing something bad, right? And that shouldn't be the case. That's all, right? So the only way is to transfer it and tell them that I don't want to hijack your roadmap, right? And we have no interest in doing that. We will also open up customers. um, Feel free to sell to them. But at the same time, at some point, we may also build, uh, we may grow our ambition to want to build it if we think that more customers could benefit from this, right? right? But it might also lead to a point where we might be able to acquire one of those, some of those, right? Uh, It might make sense as well. Um, that's how we directionally think about it. Someday. Yeah. And, and anything we are missing? Or, uh, sorry. Anything that we are missing that we should uh,
1: do better? No, I, right? think, uh, I, mean, I, I think being transparent is the most important thing, right? I think um, uh, none of us—I uh, mean, no two companies are swearing that they're you know never going to tread on each other's toes. But as long as there are no, um, uh, yeah, and as long as that expectation is not set, I think that's that's the fair right. thing. No breach make. of trust. Right. Yeah, That's exactly it. right, and that—that uh, that is, I think, the biggest uh, thing. And uh, as long as you're also you know, exposing in exposing, and you don't like turn off APIs because you you just released a competing product, for example, right? Uh, so those kind of, uh, those are the, those
0: kind of that would be really bad. Right, <laughs>
1: right. So um, switching gears a little bit, uh, just a couple of more uh, segments. Um, so it's been. <clears throat> Really an incredible last few years right I remember you first uh, you know telling me when you first hit the million dollar mark as well and you know and then you said like the freemium thing really helped the, the year right after that where you went from there to you know to five and then uh, it's just been an amazing um, ride and you uh, know obviously very well deserved and a lot of hard work has gone into the the company as well over the years and, and a lot of it is your uh, resilience and uh, and and focus um, you know, I, I listened to another interview of yours where you said, "Look, every function is a revenue function in uh, in in software companies, right?" Can you talk a little? Subscription business. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah.
0: in a subscription yeah. business,
1: right? But but you know, it's like you know, everybody is tied to to making the company successful, right? And and uh, all functions sort of have to be operating uh, in in alignment, right? It's not just the sales guy's job to get the revenue in, but you know the the product guys also got to be thinking revenue the marketing guys got to be thinking about it um, yeah. support ops etc so tell us about uh, you know your thing of how the org has to align towards uh, towards some right.
0: Of that. right um i think uh, I, I just want to be careful that it's not misconstrued that uh, the entire organization has to only focus on revenue that's not what i meant um the the, the two so there is a customer delight is the only reason why you can keep a subscriber, your customers, right? That, that's a given in a subscription business that creates a beautiful uh, alignment and tension, right? Level of tension uh, by to deliver value. The other side is um, why is every function a revenue function is that the, um, when you take the example of uh, what features are you going to build in a product, right? An engineering team and all of that, If you don't tie yourself to the the company's growth goals in terms of why am I building this feature? In what way is it either going to delight or differentiate or it's going to help me sell more, uh, it becomes harder. So every function in some sense has to and It's not just, we don't do like annual release cycles. And so that's why the thinking process has to become a revenue kind of a function Almost every month, every quarter, everybody has to be thinking about revenue and not something where you can just do a planning and then do a year-long exercise to release is definitely not the the case anymore. That's why I was saying um, every function has to be aligned with growth metrics and thinking about why am I doing what I'm doing joint at the hip with each other, especially with revenue. If it is customer success and if you are going to uh, do, let's say, Hmm. Some uh, you want to increase your, if you want to do some campaigns to say I want to arrest churn, right? And it uh, it is also very closely tied with re- retention churn. Even trying to convert your monthly customers to annual customers, you might actually get this. If if you, let's say your churn is high on monthly customers, hmm. sometimes it may look bad that hey, if uh, why should I give ten percent discount on an annual plan, right? It's not necessary you have to give it, but. Let's just say that's your only hope of retaining customers and giving yourself a chance of retaining customers annually. Like HubSpot used to do that early on um, to say most of their, they were trying to actually arrest the churn by having forcing everybody into annual contracts, right? And then later on, they opened up freemium. They became more product-led a little later. Now, every function has to think like a revenue function to be able to Align the tactics to ensure that they are acting in the best interest of the business. And it is not in isolation, which is why I was saying the metrics that actually guide you to make the decisions, you cannot ignore the, the revenues impact of those decisions, whether it's customer support, because it's no longer a cost center, right? Customer success, marketing, uh, pretty much all of them completely aligns with revenue uh, and even product and engineering. That was my point. Very
1: good. Very good. Great. So, um, you know, coming towards the end of our uh, podcast, but you know, before that, uh, what's the next two years uh, got in store for the company, right? I mean, every time you know you keep going to new stages and and, and new phases of growth uh, and and execution, right? So, what are the things that keep you up now that you've sort of built out a lot of the team, become more of a coach, right? Uh, and thinking 10x from this point, perhaps, right? What what? Uh, yeah what keeps you going and and what keeps you uh, worried at night, you know, things that you have to solve next, which are like new problems to solve.
0: Hmm. Um, I think uh, given the, the nascent nature of our uh, category and the problem, I think the thing that keeps us up at night is uh, um, the product related part, which is how do we ensure that we are actually aligned with where the customers need to go in the next two three years and are we um, completely aligned uh, is a part that um, we want to spend more time more thinking more about the the reason being right when we look at uh, how the the evolution of the market is happening between the best of breed and best of suite and all of that what we are trying to understand is what are those capabilities that would actually unlock the, given the nature of our product, which is a core infrastructure for revenue and all of that, uh, the things that we are obsessed about are helping that, like, for example, pricing experimentation. So mm-hmm. we just are just announced our price catalog and other things, which would allow the customers to be able to do more pricing experimentation. So we are now increasingly seeing more SaaS companies becoming more mature about how they are thinking about pricing and packaging, even from the earlier stages, so which means that our product has to adapt to be able to serve where the market is actually going. And it's not just about uh, saving more money on payment processing or complaints of invoice and taxation, all of that. Those are more predictable, the compliance and other things. Uh, but the, the part where we are trying to read better is to ensure that the maturity of the SaaS market, where is it going? And how do we ensure our product align, our roadmap is aligned with them is the part that we are trying to make sure we are directionally aligned with our customers.
1: Yeah, I think uh, I guess another way of saying it is, you know, billing historically has been sort of a back office uh, function that people have had to to perform, but now it's getting to the point where it could be a, a core uh, differentiator of oh, or almost right, enabler of, right. of new businesses and new business models, right? And yes. subscription billing will also sort of move into more of a. Um, uh, some element of variable billing as well not just sort of flat fee per month and things like Correct. that and how do i
0: want to price my product right. all of that continues to evolve which is why uh, which is where we are um, uh, directionally going uh, to enable customers so are we reading this right and how do we make sure that we double down and do more of this are things that we are uh, amazing obsessed about maybe not worried is not the right word <laughs> but that's what we are trying to focus on this
1: Awesome, awesome. So a couple of uh, quick five questions, right? Um, along the way in this journey, right? I mean, now looking back, uh, you know, these eight, 10 years, uh, what surprised you um, both pleasantly and uh, especially pleasantly, right? I think, um, and of course, things that you thought were going to happen very easily, never happened that easily. And things that you thought mm-hmm. were going to be, uh, <laughs> sometimes ended up being a lot less uh, challenging than you imagined. And if you were to do this again, you know, um, what were some, you know, what are some quick things that you would have done differently?
0: Sure. Um, the thing that surprised me the most, especially in B2B SaaS uh, is um, how much uh, people effort it actually takes that it gets front loaded into building something really good because there is this figuring out process, iterations and all of that, but all of that still requires you to invest heavily in a lot of areas um, and uh, I think especially in B2B SaaS uh, in a nascent category uh, what surprises me is the number of people required to solve different problems because you are dealing with new customers on one side while there is a complexity of growing customers uh, so the amount of effort that is necessary that goes into product engineering and all of that I would say definitely surprised me with the number of people that is required for a product of our nature mm. uh, I thought this will be much lesser, fewer in terms of People, uh, all of that, because the number of people that you add also adds uh, or shifts focus towards making sure your management-related uh, practices and other things also the the people-related practices also mature faster to support such an organization. And I think that kind of surprised me a little bit, uh, but it's good as well um, in terms of learnings. Mm. The second one is the snowball effect was, is. Hard to even though we see that in our customers, but what does it actually take when you build momentum and Mm. how it actually beautifully snowballs when you get your product right, features right, and then latch onto specific segments? How much uh, momentum that SaaS builds where you are able to like build revenue is something that definitely pleasantly surprised me because. It's so hard to actually get to that the first 5, 10 and all of that, but you actually get a lot of other things like NRR metrics and clear alignment in terms of how your revenue grows with your customers and all of that. You get that, right? Uh, it's amazing to see how it beautifully snowballs. Uh, definitely, it, it doesn't get easier. I'm not saying that. Uh, still hard, but the momentum shift is just beautiful to see uh, uh, inside out.
1: Right. And and I, I guess uh, along with that also, sometimes is I always liken it to driving a car. Sometimes you have to go back to third gear and, you know, retool a few things, you know, get, build some more torque and momentum right. before you can accelerate again, right? You can't always be nonstop, you know, going in one direction. <laughs> um, and, and I think those are some of the moments you talked about when you have to build the next layer of the team, next layer of the processes, right. you know, uh, retool the product to be a little more, you know, uh, robust and scalable as you went in your... Um, Tiers right. of customers and so on. Uh, any uh, quick um, thoughts for uh, young entrepreneurs starting out now? You know, looking at the SaaS space. Um, you know, what would you advise them? You know, in terms of opportunity. You know, is, is is the market very crowded? You know, what are you know? How do you find white spaces?
0: Um, I would say uh, I definitely focus on more than a lot of other metrics, especially getting to the first million focus on more first principles questions of why do customers care? Why are they even buying it? What else are they buying it? And still try to focus on there is so much done in Excel sheets that we all compete with. Um, I wouldn't consider this to be crowded uh, because there is uh, every time you go deeper into any slice of market, whether it's small customers, medium or big customers, there are so many inefficiencies in every uh, type of industry imaginable. And uh, we are having a, print row seat, looking at so many SaaS companies coming out of the, like everywhere in the world, that I'm still uh, getting surprised by the number of companies that are even coming up in uh, surprising industries, including real estate and all of that, Uh, the the inefficiencies are so bad. And also the SMB market never cared about automation because software was not affordable to that segment. And with SaaS, it has become affordable and that buying behavior is completely shifting. But SMBs are so hungry for more SaaS products to automate things. That is something I don't think any of us predicted probably 10 years back because SaaS used to be the, the rich people's enterprise game where you build something successful, go enterprise. But it is possible to actually build amazingly beautiful companies focusing on SMBs, mid-market, right, or enterprises rather than having to move into enterprises. I think um, so if you are starting out, don't think that market is crowded. that there is actually so much space uh, and room, white space that is available in um, every market, but only if you look close enough and hard enough to understand the customer's persona better is my
1: take. Great. Krish, uh, on that note, you know it's a really good encouraging note for the uh, entrepreneurs as well who listen to our podcast. Once again, you know, congratulations. I think it's just been fascinating what you have been building at Charge B. And, uh, but we all know the best is yet to come. Uh, all the best and look forward to continuing to uh, to be connected in, in, in your journey.
0: Thanks so much. That was fun chatting with you. Thanks. So Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast app for free and you'll be the first one to know when new episodes are available. Just search for Prime Venture Partners Podcast in Apple Podcast, Spotify, CastBox or however you get your podcasts. Then hit subscribe. And if you have enjoyed the show, we would be really grateful if you leave us a review on Apple Podcast. To read the full transcript, find the link in the show notes.